Let's turn to 2 Corinthians, please. And uh, we, we did have a meditation, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 this morning. I'd like you to turn again to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to read two verses. And they are in verse 9 and 10. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. And Paul writes again to the Christians at Corinth. And he says this. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Amen. At the start of a new year, uh, it's upon us, and it's often a time when many people make their goals or their aims known, isn't it? Uh, some people write them down on a bit of paper, some people don't, and perhaps some people don't bother at all. But when in, in the workplace, for many people, it is the start of the year when they actually have to write something down. Their employer will demand that they fill in some um, software and make their goals for the, the year now. What are your aims? And then at the end of the year, you'll get them reviewed. And your salary rise or not might depend upon how you have met your goals. So in my workplace, if you're quite sharp, you'd make ones which were easily achievable. But anyway, that's by the way. People do that, don't they? Uh, sometimes make specific goals in life, and maybe you have. Maybe you thought of this coming year what your, your goals might be for different things. We all have different things. If you're learning the piano or doing the piano, you might say, well, I'm going to get to this certain grade by the end of the year. And if you've said that, whatever grade number that might be, let's say grade six, you hopefully worked out how you're going to get there. Because if you just say, well, I'm going to get there, you're probably not going to get there unless you have a plan to do that. You might have a plan to get fitter. Well, just saying I'm going to get fit is not going to accomplish it. And perhaps if you put a plan down, that will help. You might say I'm going to run 5K three times a week or I'm going to join coach to 5K or something like that. All of us might well have different goals or aims for the year. After the amount I ate at lunchtime, it might be to lose a few pounds in fairness. And it's not wrong to have goals or aims. It's not wrong to have goals or aims. They can help really build character. Um, to discipline and self-control in, in a person's life as they seek to work towards those which are useful. And tonight, though, we are going to look at what should be the ultimate, the ultimate aim of every believer. And all our other aims, whatever they might be, must come under that. We're going to look at the believer's resolve. What is our resolve? Well, Paul said this is the believer's resolve. Look at verse 9. We make it our aim, or our goal, our ambition. We are resolved to please him. To please him. So our resolve is to please him. Then we're going to think about what is one of the reasons we do that. It's not the only reason. But he says, for... There's a review, the believer's review. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So if you're a believer, 
here tonight, if you're any, every believer will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. It's a review. So the resolve, our aim is to please him. The review that we will have is the judgment seat of Christ and then we'll think about the reward. Because when we come to the judgment seat of Christ, there is this review and we are told in scripture that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil, or some translations, whether good or bad. So resolve, review, and reward. Now often we don't like to think of this, but scripture brings it out in a couple of places that all of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, and we'll think about that. But firstly then, this resolve. All of our aims and our goals, and whatever they might be, there are smaller ones we can have, must be to this ultimate aim. And they all come under the umbrella of this, if you like, that we should seek to live a life that pleases God. That pleases God. That is the aim. That must be the resolve of every single believer here. We're not seeking to earn our salvation. That's not why we're seeking to live a life that is pleasing to him. We're not seeking to earn his salvation. We're not seeking to earn his love. We cannot be more loved than we are already. We cannot be less loved at all. It's impossible for that just to fall out of his love. We cannot have any greater acceptance than we have already. Because you are in Christ. You are accepted as Christ is accepted. And you are loved in the beloved one. So none of that, just to dispel any thoughts that we possibly might have, I'm sure in a crowd like this no one thought anything like that but just to say that that is impossible that we might be loved or accepted more and salvation is dependent upon the Lord but we live a life in knowledge of all that God has done is doing and will do for us and has provided for us and we want to please him and so the picture is this, isn't it? Or a picture is like this, of a child who, who so loves their father or mother, so loves their father or mother, and, and realises their father and mother has provided them so much in this world, and their father and mother set their love upon them. And so they go out. They want to do things that will please and They never want to disappoint that father and mother whom they know loves them. And that is the part of the picture we can think here. And so we must strive, friends. We must have as our aspiration to please God. Now, of course, we know there is one who ultimately pleased him, wasn't there? The Lord Jesus Christ. So when we think, what are the things that please God? Well, we could sort of pass on this point and we can say, be like Christ. Move on to the next point. That would be a quick summary, but that's exactly right. That would be exactly right. The Lord Jesus Christ, when he was upon this earth, showed what man is perfectly like in all his perfection. You remember the cries that came from heaven, the voice that came from heaven at the baptism of our Lord Jesus Christ. The heavens opened, a voice came, Matthew 3.17. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well 
pleased. We think of the transfiguration. You remember that time when the Lord Jesus took a few of his disciples up, Peter, James and John, up there. And he was transfigured before them. There was Elijah and Moses there. And the voice came from heaven as a bright cloud overshadowed them. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so we remember... That the Lord Jesus Christ lived a life that was well-pleasing to God. And so when each of you, when, when I think of, well, what is well-pleasing to God? If my aim is to live a life that is well-pleasing to God, then it would be very good for me to think, how did Jesus Christ act in this particular issue? What is his wisdom with regard to that issue? Because everything, every action, every motive, every thought... Everything that he did was completely, 100% pleasing to his Father, to his God in heaven. And so we can say, really, if we want to live a life that is well-pleasing to him, then we pursue Christ-likeness. We pursue vigorously, earnestly, Christ-likeness. Rather concentrates the minds, doesn't it? concentrates the mind how that might occur obviously the fruit of the spirit brings out the likeness of Christ develops Christ in us that Christ might be seen in us I think on you, I mean, you might have goals I've got different goals there, and they're all minor perhaps compared to this goal you know I've got I, I've got a little bit of paper uh, pinned up on my notice board and it's got three running distances and it's got three times I'd like to achieve uh, ask me in 12 months time how I managed, last year it didn't go that well but, but I've also thought how am I going to achieve that how am I going to get to that to do that it's not just going to happen and likewise then, take away that which is fairly irrelevant for most of you I guess but Christ-likeness Maybe I'd write that on my board. Maybe that'd be a better one, wouldn't it? Take that one down, put that on. How am I going to get to that? What things do I need specifically to work on in my life to get to that? What things do you specifically need to work on in your life? And so it is right to have an aim. And our aim is to please him. You know, there is, there are, there is ambitions, isn't there? And there is selfish ambition that can even be in, in the life of a believer. You know, Paul addressed that a few times. He, he spoke about, you might remember, when he was in prison uh, for preaching the gospel. And he wrote to the Philippians that there were people who proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition. Now, Paul was happy that Christ was being preached. But he says they are doing it out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. So as we'll think, there would be no reward for those people who were doing that out of selfish ambition. Seeking to cause hurt to Paul in some way by doing what they were doing. Later on he writes to the Philippians as well and reminds them, chapter 2 verse 3, to do nothing from selfish ambition, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. You know, the flesh can sometimes cry out in us, can't us? That we want to be recognised. That we want praise to come. That we want people to see us and give us tasks. 
And that can be a selfish ambition. It can be a selfish ambition. Our Lord Jesus Christ was the total opposite of that. He had humility. And why sometimes do we speak wrongly about other people? You know, James addresses the tongue, the use of the tongue. And when he addresses the use of the tongue in chapter 3, towards the end of that section, verse 14, he speaks then, says, If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambitions in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. You know, one reason we can speak un kind words about someone we can speak ill of someone is this it's because of the selfish ambition that we want others to see ourselves as better than them we can put them down and thus by putting them down we can be raised up that we're not like that that is selfish ambition and we need to recognize that but in the christian life in the christian life there is a place to have deep resolves and ambition you know, a, a friend of mine at lunchtime today was telling us a, a story uh, of a, a, a young man who was 19 years of old, and he was reminding us of a, he was telling us rather of a letter that this man wrote, and it was such a godly letter. He was about to be martyred for his faith in Christ, and he was martyred for his faith in Christ. But as he wrote to his mother and his sister. It was amazing how this man wrote at just 19 years of old of devotion to the Lord Jesus Christ and how he was prepared to to give it all up. Give all his life up, but he wouldn't go away from Christ. 19, can't remember the man's name. But I did think of Jonathan Edwards. You might remember, or you might know of Jonathan Edwards. Not the triple jumper from uh, a few decades ago, but the the theologian uh, in America. I went over there in the times of the Puritan. And at the age of 20, at the age of 20, Jonathan Edwards, over a period of a few months, wrote down 70 resolutions. And he looked at them um, continually. And they were, he was resolved to do this, he was resolved to do this, he was resolved to do this. The first one starts like this, that I am resolved, that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to the glory of God. That was number one. I'm not going to read the other 69. You'll be relieved at that. But that was him as a young man. He had these resolutions. He was resolved to live a life to the glory of God of God. He was serious. He was serious about pursuing Christ likeness. And so the challenge is, isn't it, for us, as we enter this new year, as sometimes we think about what are our aims and our goals, it's good at the start of the year to focus again. We can do this any day of the week, of course. But to focus right at the start and ask ourselves, Regoal ourselves, if you like. Make sure that this is our ultimate goal, that we, in whatever we do, we can make it our aim to please him. You know, Paul would write elsewhere, whatever you do, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. From something what might seem the most mundane thing, to something what might seem the highest thing, Now some of you are going to go for a walk on the beach tomorrow or something like that, I I believe. 
You can do it to the glory of God. You can do it to the glory of God. You can do it in a way that pleases Him. Of course you can. If you want to know more about that walk, speak to Stephen. I think it's 11 o'clock start. You can do that. If you want to go for a run tomorrow at 8 o'clock, see me. And uh, <laughs> uh, No rush at the end, I suppose, but there we go. But you're more than welcome. And we can do both. To the glory of God, we can do it in ways that, so we, our aim is to please him. Those, those sort of seemingly mundane things, to the great higher things that we might have in life. So, let's get a little bit of flesh before we move on. In ple- what things do please God? I've got five things written down briefly here. Romans 12 tells us living a sacrificial life. Therefore I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So what pleases God? To live our lives in a sacrificial, serving way. To use our bodies in ways, and all that God has given us, that we might serve other people, and by serving other people, we serve him. Number one we can say so the Christian who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God number two just in Romans 12 again a transformed mind that understands the will of God is pleasing to God let me read that Romans 12 verse 2 you remember it well do not continue to be conformed to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you test and approve what is the will of God what is good, pleasing and perfect so when our minds focus on the word of God and the word of God acts in our minds we understand the will of God that is pleasing to God that we will know his will and obviously then act that out we cannot act out his will if we do not know what it is so first of all we need minds that are transformed by his word and then we will act that out so why do we why do we preach why do you have bible studies why do you have a some of you parents might think we're going to sort of refocus on a family Bible time. We're going to make sure we do that at a meal time or whenever that might be. Some of us might say we've got a plan for reading the Bible in a year or two years. I'm going to read these books. Great. Why is that? Why are you doing that? Well, the answer will be, won't it? So that I can understand. I can have a greater understanding of God's will for my life. I can be drawn closer to the Lord Jesus Christ and I can be more Christ-like. So, family Bible times, brilliant personal Bible reading, brilliant, all these things, absolutely. But they are not a goal or the end goal. They are a means to an end. To live a life pleasing to God that we might please him. A sacrificial life, a transformed mind, and holy living, number three. These aren't in, the order is irrelevant here, there's just five things I picked out. Ephesians 5 tells us that walk as children to the, of the light. This is pleasing to the Lord. So if I'm going to live, if you're going to live, a life that is pleasing to God, if that is our resolve, and it should be of every Christian, then I want to live, we should live holy lives. What does the Lord think about areas in my life? My standard of living? 
the entertainments, the friendships, the holidays, the cars, the sports, all these areas in life. Is there holiness being portrayed in there? Am I set apart for him in those things? Are you? Or is it that your life is compartmentalised? There's one area here, this is the church bit, and here's the other bit outside. But God calls his people, his children, to live holy lives pleasing to him. Number four, the use of money. When Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 4 verse 18, he says, I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. They had given a financial gift to Paul, the assembly had given a financial gift to Paul, and that pleased God. So the use of our finance, you see, can be used in ways that pleases God. Giving, when done sincerely, generally, and remember God loves a joyful giver, so not grudgingly, is pleasing to God. That pleases his heart because he has given us, we are stewards of what he has given us and we can give. A pleasing sacrifice to God. And number five, now if you're a child living at home, if you could just pay attention just a little bit extra at this point, okay, that'll be good, thank you. Colossians 3.20 Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord so if you're a young person and you're living at home with your parents well we could go beyond that but that's at least covering that age group anyway isn't it if you want to please God then obey your parents in everything where they have that delegated authority God has delegated authority to different people he's delegated authority to the government in our land He's delegated authority to parents and it pleases God when we obey the God-given authorities in all the areas that they should have authority over us in. So children, obey your parents. So there's just a few things. If we are going to live a life that is pleasing to God, if that is our resolve, that is our aim, and it should be, we're going to refocus on that, then here's a few things we can put in. Here's how we are going to achieve our aim. Here's how we're going to get to pleasing God. And that should be a prayer. So if we pray for each other, as we pray for each other, people say, I'm praying for you. Well, it's wonderful to pray for each other. Listen how Paul prayed for the Hebrews. Chapter 13, verse 20 to 21. Now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. You know, Paul wanted those believers to be equipped so that they might do the things that God found pleasing. So in my prayer life for you, your prayer life for me, there should be that 
in the prayer. That should be a part of the prayers as we pray for each other. That we might have Christ-likeness in ourselves and Christ-likeness we long to see in others because that glorifies God. Our aim is to please him. And as I said, all the other goals that we might have in life, wherever they might be, can come under that one big umbrella. There's the ultimate one. Other goals might be there. We have other ways we're going to get there. But let's be resolved to have that as our aim in life. Why? Why? Well, number two, there's going to be a review. A review. A motivation for that girl to please God in every area of life, to please God as we go through life, to seek to resolve to do that. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The we Paul is writing to there is believers. It is to believers. He is writing. You notice there's a certainty about this. We must. It's not we might or possibly, but we will. We'll certainly all of us appear. And there are no exceptions. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And it is going to be an individual assessment. An individual assessment. As someone has said, And it's been said a few times, we go to the judgment seat of Christ in single file. I will not go hand in hand, so to speak, with you. We will not go as an assembly. We will not go as a group of anything. We will appear there in single file, individually, each of us. And each one, as we'll think, will give an account for what we have done. And the word appear is interesting, as many of you know. It's not just we'll sort of just happen to be there. You know, I saw someone, oh, he he was there. No, the word appear is that we will be revealed. We will be disclosed at the judgment seat of Christ. We will be made manifest there. You know, as we, all of us, as we live walk, talk, act on earth here it is really easy for us to hide things isn't it (coughs) to put on a front it is really easy for us to pretend and to say the right things we all know that we all know that and probably To some degree or another, we've all done that at some point, you know. But when we come before the Lord Jesus, in his perfect judgment, all that will be stripped away, if there is any of that. The true motive of my heart in service will be shown. The real reason I did anything will be known, is known to him now. Is known to him now. The gifts that he gave me are known. He knows what he gave Well, How did I use those gifts? How did I use those resources? I mean, it's easy. It's easy, as you know, for me to fool you and you to fool me, to some degree, isn't it? As we get to know others, it's not so easy. But we can see, can't we? We can look at those who have 
you know, I think of famous people who have fallen, famous Christians who have fallen. That they, they fooled many people for decades. But they did not fool the Lord Jesus. And when we come to that place, it is as if almost we are stripped naked and in, revealed before him. As someone think I has said, it's one thing to appear in the doctor's surgery. It's another thing to be x-rayed by him. You look okay. The x-ray might say something different. And so our character of service will be revealed. First Corinthians 3 tells us that that will be tested with fire. I know that applies primarily to teachers, but there's a principle there. Also, as I said, the motives, the Lord comes, will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. And we will be there at this judgment seat. Now, just to make very, very clear, this judgment seat is just for believers. It is not the great white throne judgment. It is entirely separate from that. That is where people will be judged, unbelievers will be judged for their works and there will be the lake of fire. But, if you have trusted in Christ, you know this. You must know this. You can continue to know this. But because of his work upon the cross and your faith in him, your sin has been completely all of your sin has been completely dealt with by him once and for all past, present and future and so there at this judgment seat we, no one will be, there will be no penalty because Christ himself has paid the penalty every sin of every believer was judged at the cross You know, he was made to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be the righteousness of God in him. We rejoice in that. So keep that firmly in mind. That when you come, it's not your sin will be judged. Now sins are many, his mercy is more, that is true. But, it is a place of review. Where there will be rewards, as we see, and there will be loss. Maybe, what, what does loss mean there? What do we mean by loss? What are we going to lose? Well, certainly not going to lose our salvation. That's impossible. You cannot lose your salvation. He keeps you in his hand. And we're not kept by our works. The works show the fruit of our salvation. But perhaps the idea is this. That what we thought was valuable and what we thought was good will be shown to be not so. And what we expected we will not receive like we thought. And so, it will be a true and a perfect verdict on our service for him. And any idea of loss will be a loss of reward. There will be no loss of our salvation there. You know, some of you, I know, and I used to be numbered among that, would go in for our annual reviews and uh, the, the, the manager would give this review to you. And I remember once going in for my annual review and this man had been my boss for about one month and he was giving me my annual review and I thought it was drastically unfair kind of thing well the things he said were good I thought were true you see but the things he said were wrong I thought no 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 that's obviously not wrong that's how we all think isn't it but when it comes to our review by Christ it will be absolutely perfect we, we will not there will be no our, our mouths will be stopped 
we will not be out of sight. But 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 you don't understand. You know there'll be nothing of that, of course. And so we will be perfectly reviewed. When will this happen? When will this happen? Well, I think it will happen after the rapture of the church. And it will be before the coming of the Lord to rule upon this earth in his thousand year rule upon this earth. I think that will be the period when the judgment seat of Christ happens. Some of you might disagree with that. But you know, even if we do, we shouldn't run away tonight with, oh well, when's it happen? That's going to be the big thing in my mind. The thing is, it will happen. The thing is, it will happen. And you will be there. And you will be reviewed for everything. And I will be for everything that is done in the body. And so, thirdly, there will be rewards. Each one may receive what is due. What is our due reward will be given to us. You know, some people in life think, well, they're not recompensed appropriately in the workplace. And maybe they are, and maybe they aren't. But when it comes to the judgment seat of Christ, we will all individually receive what is due from his gracious hand through what he has given us. Now there's a number of parables that draw principles with regard to this. I want to draw your attention. In Luke chapter 19, I'm not going to read it for you, but if you want to turn to it just to revise uh, on chapter 19... These aren't speaking about the judgment seat of Christ. There's the parable of the ten miners from verses 11 down to verse 27. And as I say, this is not the judgment seat of Christ being spoken spoken about here. But the power of the miners, you might remember, they were given one miner each. Okay? But they came back that one said, well look, the first one came, verse 16, you can see there, your miner has made ten miners more. The reward, you will be given authority, verse 17, over ten cities. Verse 18, Lord, yours has made five miners. So that's a good increase, but not as much as the first one. And he said, you are to be over five cities. What is the principle Okay, this is not the judgment seat of Christ, but what is the principle? The principle is this, that where there is equal ability or gift that is given, but unequal faithfulness, there will be smaller reward. So rewards will be in recompense to what we have done with what we have been given. Okay, that's what the parable of the miners teach. Where there is equal ability, but equal Unequal, unequal unfaithfulness, there will be small rewards. So they will differ. The rewards will differ according to what you've done. But, on the other one, the parable of the talents, now if you could turn to Matthew chapter 25, uh, I, I know, you, you know these well, but Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 to 30, you will see there a corresponding principle, contrasting one. In that one, There was, in verse 15, five talents given, two talents given, and to another one talent was given. Okay, so there, there was unequal things given. But what we see, there was equal faithfulness. So each one, when they came, or the first two anyway, when they came back to the Lord, okay, you know, the five had made five, the two had made two. Less about the one. In a minute, but we'll see when there was unequal but 
ability or things given, but there was equal faithfulness, the rewards were the same. Do you get the idea of the principle there? So all of us have been gifted in different ways and given different opportunities and different resources and different talents. All of us have. The measure of gift it is different. And for some of us it might be the same in some ways. Only the Lord knows that. But how we use it and what we do of it will be the criteria. How much we have been given is outside of our control. That's in God's sovereignty. What he has given is to, to some people, you think they have got a huge gift in a certain area. And some have got a smaller gift in that very same area. By God's provision, by his sovereignty, but by his grace. But equally, if both use that in equal faithfulness, the reward is the same. And now, on earth, is the time we prepare for this review. From the time you became a Christian to the time you leave this earth is the time span which will be in view. We cannot do anything about the past. You cannot do anything about the past. You might be think, sitting here tonight and think, well, there's some real big mistakes I've made. And that might well be true. All you can do with the past is learn from it. Can learn from the past. But as we go forward in this year, and who knows what it will bring before us, we can go with this view that we want to live a life that is pleasing to God. We understand He has given us, all of us, different resources and gifts and talents. We will each of us be accountable individually when we come before Him. And he will reward truly and properly. There will be no argument, there can be no argument as we do that. You know, C.T. Studd, I think someone quoted him at the conference yesterday. He was a great uh, missionary, as you know, went out. He was also a great cricketer, by the way, I don't know if you know that. He played for the England uh, cricket team uh, when they went over to Australia and reclaimed the ashes. They could probably do with him now, actually. Um, C.T. Studd, only one life, twill soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. We repeat it often. Some people can remember a dear sister who was in the meeting who had a, uh, a above her fireplace, Mary Patterson, for those who are old enough to remember Mary. She, she had it there, and uh, I remember visiting her once, and uh, I said, C.T. Studd, and she gave this quote straight back to me uh, on there. But it's true. Only one life will soon be passed, and it will. Only what's done for Christ will last. And he will give the reward. You know, Paul spoke to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4. He said to them this. It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. It's a very small thing that I should be judged by you. In fact, I don't even judge myself. It is the Lord who judges me. And he looked forward, he says, there will be a time when each one will receive his commendation from God. That doesn't mean Paul wouldn't take on board advice or take on criticism. He didn't mean that at all. 
But what he meant was, whatever comes my way, whether it be praise or whether it be criticism, I know ultimately there's one who I'll come before and his judgment will be true. And that's far more important than anything I can receive in this world. And so the Lord Jesus Christ, he is the judge. He will give perfectly what is done in the body. You know, we have been called to love him and to serve him, the one who gave his life for us. And just let me say in conclusion, we've seen tonight, or been reminded again tonight, of this future event, which is sure and certain. You know, we say we don't know what the year will bring. Well, that's true. We do not know what the year will bring. But we do know this. We will all be there, individually. We should, Paul said, we must use it as a motivation to serve him now in our bodies, in a manner that will please him, and ultimately merit reward for you in a future time. May God bless his word to our hearts. Shall we pray? Father, we bow in your presence now. We thank you at the start of this year. We can read your word, we can consider it, we can think of some events that are sure and certain. Help us, Lord, to, uh, to keep these things which are from you in our minds and by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would apply them in our lives that we might bring glory to you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.